Welcome to the Field Trip Podcast. As always, my name is Brent Terhune. Joining me for the first time on the program is Peter Frederick Wallace. Peter, how you doing, man? Um, not bad, man. How you doing? I'm well. Uh, I asked you on this because I've always I've you I've always wanted you, Peter, on this show. Wow. <laughs> and I yeah uh, I I didn't know I was in such. Yeah, you're on hide the man. I'm I'm a difficult get. That's the problem. You had to go through yeah. layers and layers of people to finally get to me. You're playing hard to record over here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I I, I wanted uh, to have you on the show for a long time, and I I sometimes I have a topic that I think matches up perfectly with people, and other times I'm like, I think there's a good topic. I want this person. I'll see if they want to do this. So on this episode, we're talking about people that led double lives. Now, tell me nice. about your double life, Peter, that I assume you have. I don't know for <laughs> sure. As, have you? Do you know anybody with a double life, or have you felt that you've led a double life before? Well, I mean, in some ways, like, I, I came to the comedy game kind of late, and so I already uh, had a life that was established. Mm-hmm. And so trying to transition into a person doing comedy, doing creative stuff from being a person who was trying to fit in with the world yeah cog in the machine and, and pay bills work. and keep the place where you live and all that all that yeah. stuff the rat the race fact that, the fact that my friends will still ask me hey are you still doing comedy that makes me feel like i'm living a double life because they just mm-hmm. don't intersect at all yeah it's like yeah i guess i'm still doing comedy I I have that too, and it, it, we'll get into some you know really extreme cases of double lives. But I felt that way. I started comedy young when I was sixteen, and pretty much every every job that I had was to facilitate comedy in a certain way. Whether it was just yeah, that's to, the smart move. Well, I was lucky enough to at least know what I wanted to do from a young age. People, some right. people don't have that luxury, you know. But I remember. Early on in my career, I was uh, working at a hospital in the kitchen. I w- at food prep, you know, making the drinks that went on the patient trays or going up to the floors to get the patient trays. Which that was my that was my favorite job was mm-hmm. that one where I went up to the floors and got all the patient trays because uh, nobody talked to me. I just went and got the things and brought it back. So it's pretty much as long as I did my stuff, nobody really talked to me. And I love a job where. It was, I don't have to think I'm not, this is not a thinking job. Yes. You know, Yes. <clears throat> I was thinking, how do I get out of here? Right. What jokes do I got to write to get b- good enough to not have to come back to this place? You know, R- right. A job where your brain is still free. Yeah. I've like had too many jobs. Job. I've had too many jobs that required just enough of my brain that I, it has to like, it, it, it pushes out the creative part mm-hmm. and like, it's the worst. And whenever I, and I have quit most of those. I've quit every one of those jobs, but <laughs> the uh, it take you have to actually have to detox. Mm-hmm. Like when you let a job take over your brain so much that when you quit it, you, like my last job, I was doing database administration, and it just there's no like intersection at all between that and and wanting to do something creative. As far as my 
point of view is. I would say and, so, and I don't know that your job specifically, but you said data, blaze, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, yeah that's- exactly. <laughs> exactly. And when I quit, I was like, I never want to have another conversation about a database ever again. I would mm-hmm. prefer to forget that they even exist. So, I, yeah. I had that moment where I, I did a show. It was at some kind of college uh, and it was like sold out on a Saturday night and it, nobody was there to see me. I was just happened to be on the show, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and then I drove the hour back to where I, I lived and then I had to be at the hospital, start the job at six 30. And I remember wow. just being so tired, putting all these drinks on trays thinking, man, nobody here even knows that I killed last night. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's like that I rarely do I say I killed and it's probably more likely yeah I had a good set but it's right. like nobody even knows that I had a good set last night and it doesn't right. matter to these people <laughs> at all I had that realization in that moment I was like god I got to I how do I do more of last night and less of this morning you know Right right uh, Yeah that, and it just like that's the thing about live performance it's 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 this when it's working, it's just this beautiful thing that happens. And then when it's done, it's just, it's done. It's over. It just dissipates into the ether and mm-hmm. that's it. There's no lasting thing to point. You didn't make a sculpture that you can point to and say, look at this fucking sculpture I made. That's mm-hmm. so awesome. You just, oh, I, I played that audience like a fiddle mm-hmm. and maybe someone will remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Unless <laughs> I captured it on a video. The and, yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, th- yeah, it's, uh, and be, oh, before we jump into our actual topic topic, we're just kind of, you know, uh, let's do some plugs. You oh, uh, yes. run a storytelling show. I do. I, I did last month. And I said, when I got on stage that you stole it from me, Peter, no. <laughs> it was a show that uh, a friend of mine started Matt Holt. Yes. And it's a storytelling show of a different name. And now you've since have taken it over and, and steered the ship, uh, well, I might add, but uh, let's let's plug whatever you'd like to plug. Well, yeah, and actually, yes, that show. Uh, by the way, I didn't steal it; he bequeathed it to me. Listen, no, you stole it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was. I didn't correct. I said I walked out. I said he stole it, but I didn't. Then I didn't correct it. So I, but I thought it was funnier. But I was like, I hope nobody actually thinks he stole this from me. But then I came back and did the show. Right, know? right. Ah. <laughs> uh. No, I mean, yeah, you had the the problem of you were getting too much paid work. You couldn't you couldn't uh, <laughs> keep yeah. running a regular show. Uh, but yeah, it's still the same uh, date uh, of the month. It's the third Tuesday of every month at the White Rabbit Cabaret in mm-hmm. uh, Fountain Square, Indianapolis, Indiana. Yeah. Uh, for all you people listening in Malaysia and and other places across <laughs> the world, I think there's the uh, one. So book your tickets to to come. <laughs> you could probably get there by the next one, which is June twentieth. And but, it's uh, themed. So I did Emphasis yeah. for Family, which that I like. I like to do a theme and keep it loose. So let's see mm-hmm. what people come up with. Like when when I was doing it, we did like Three Sheets to the Wind. Yeah. We did Brush with Celebrity, I think, is the one you have coming up again, because mm-hmm. we've all kind of met somebody that's famous, you know. But I, I think this is the first time we've done it since you guys did it. So that's probably yeah. five years now. It's probably it's a good topic, I so, think. Oh to god, revisit. it's more than that. It's like eight years. Jesus. Too long. <laughs> but <laughs> it if is a good never, topic. If you've never been to a storytelling show, it's a great place. I'm I did it because I'm working on a story that I think will be in my act, but it's also 
I think a storytelling show is less pressure to have laughs. I needed to see if the laughs yeah. were there. Right. And it's uh, sometimes a story is great, but there's no laughs. And how do you how do you do that in a stand up setting, at least from my perspective? But I when I ran that show, I would say it's a storytelling show. And then I'd had people literally say, what is that? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how to tell you any more than their stories being it's told, being told at a show. Yeah. Like, yeah. but uh, yeah, you do that uh, every month at the White Rabbit Cabaret. And uh, yes. that's one of my favorite venues in Indianapolis to begin with. So uh, it is I would... a fantastic venue. Uh, it's still one of those weird things where it's just like we have this cool little secret mm-hmm. that I wish was less secret because I want it to be successful. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you also know that part of what keeps it being what it is is that it it, it hasn't been overrun by uh, oh. the normies. The yeah. normies. I didn't <laughs> want to say it, but yeah, the normies. That's okay. The and that, that- and shit. When I think about it, uh, it could double lives could be a topic, uh, like for the for the the storytelling show. Just it definitely could. Hey, it definitely could. Um, I uh, and I still need to figure out a, a theme for uh, July. Am I not speaking properly in the microphone? No, you sound good to me. All right, good. Um, let's let's, uh, but, let's jump in, shall yes. we? Yes, yes. It actually your uh, your theme made me think of. There's a a book called uh the double life is twice as good okay by uh jonathan ames mm-hmm. uh did you ever see the show uh bored to death on hbo i think maybe i saw the pilot because i took a, a screenwriting class and they're like watch uh-huh. the pilot at least so i think maybe i watched the first one of that that was uh that was one of the the things from the the book and it's based on i mean it's just the idea that he was a writer and then he started he decided he wanted to be a, a detective so he started advertising himself as a private detective private so, detective uh, slash writer so if slash, you need something yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an unlicensed private detective he would build well, himself that... as. but that's a good book for your listeners if they're if they're interested in double lives go check out uh the double life is twice as good by jonathan ames yeah add that to your amazon list or wh- wherever you read uh yeah. my my reading is so slim anymore. That's the only thing slim about me. Come on, folks. Um, or they can just borrow my copy if they want. Yeah, just dude, reach out to line. Peter. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's how we're talking books, which is a good transition. Are you a comic book guy at all, Peter? Um, yeah, well, here's the thing. I uh, I started reading comics in, in my teens, as mm-hmm. most comics readers do. But I was never a big superhero guy. Like, okay. Like, I've read the... You know the important ones you're supposed to read, like Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But superhero. Every, by the time I started reading comics, superheroes seemed like for babies to me. It was like yeah. that was for for little kids, and I was more interested in like the horror comics and the mm-hmm. the, the the the. There were people putting out like these uh, semi autobiographical comics that I loved, so I was more into like the indie, black and white, yeah, you know, type of stuff. So no um, Marvel is what I'm hearing. <laughs> I mean, I probably have a few Marvels somewhere. Probably, yeah, uh, I know. Uh, speaking, of, I read Marvels. The uh, Kurt Busiek and uh, Alex Ross. The I mean, this is from the '90s, so no one's yeah. going to remember it. But Marvels sort of kicked off. Uh, was trying to follow like DC at the time had like Vertigo and the more like adult-oriented comics, mm-hmm. and uh, Marvel was sort of trying to see if they had any uh, purchase in those fertile lands, mm-hmm. and I guess they did. 
especially well, since I think a lot of the the early uh, MCU stuff was kind of drawing on on the same kind of stuff that they were doing in Marvels. Yeah, Excelsior. <laughs> that, that's all I know. Stanley. Stanley's a thief. Uh, uh, well, we can get into that later. Kirby we'll all day. Curve Jack. <laughs> uh, well, a Marvel editor moonlights as a Japanese writer. Here's one a story that I found around 2004. Marvel associate editor C.B. Sobolski started writing for rival comics company Dark Horse. To be safe, he decided to use a pseudonym, so he was Akira Yoshida. Uh, He wrote a couple of titles, which it seems were impressive enough that Marvel uh, editor sought another Marvel editor sought him out over the possibility of writing for the company. So now he's in a bind. He's already writing for Marvel. He's writing for a different company under a different name. So his options were to either politely decline the offer or explain uh, and get caught and maybe lose his job. So guess what he chooses? He, uh, he lied. Yeah. Uh, we'd like to give Sobolski the benefit of the doubt and assume that when he chose uh, an Asian pseudonym, he had no intention of convincing anyone he was an Asian man. But that's difficult because his work writing for Marvel focused heavily Japanese themes, culture, and characters to the delight of uh, executives who loved having a Japanese writer. So in 2005, uh, there was an interview. He went so far as to recall his childhood in Japan, learning (laughs) English from TV, movies, and superhero comics. Uh, His totally fake childhood, uh, to be clear, never happened at all. Right. And uh, Yoshida became a fairly well-known name in comics. Uh, someone sprung a leak and rumors began to fly that uh, he was Sobolski and Sobolski was Yoshida and Finkel was Einhorn. Uh, he <laughs> he was asked about the rumors in 2006 and he denied them, saying numerous office visits and convention appearances uh, would prove that Yoshida was real. The photos never, never really materialized, of course, but uh, some of the executives at Marvel did admit to meeting uh, Yoshida. Well, it turns out the person Marvel execs thought was Yoshida was in truth a Japanese translator visiting the Marvel offices, which raises a lot of other questions. Wow. So I'd, and I, <clears throat> I should have looked into this further now that when I read that part again, uh, I don't know if he hired a Japanese person to come be That would Yoshida. be great. That's what I was hoping. Yeah, that's like a that's a very like George Costanza type dilemma. Right. Right. His is oh, I got to be this other guy, but he's Japanese, so I got to hire him or whatever. But yeah, he's working for one company, uh, and I guess you know Marvels would be to me, to my knowledge, the the pinnacle. And it wasn't good enough. He needs to go work and do something else too, Peter. <laughs> Probably maybe uh, Dark Horse is known for probably allowing a little more creative creative uh, freedom than Marvel yeah. was. So that was probably part of it. Plus, yeah. none of these companies pay shit. Like now the movies make so much money that we assume anyone involved in it is making a lot of money. But mm-hmm. the writers and comics are way, way underpaid. They don't even yeah. get credited when their stuff is used in the movies. They get nothing for any of that shit. All, all it is is credit. All it is is like another slide on the the credits that just put the the source material at least. Yeah. Uh, that's coming from a guy who has 
had several things stolen via the internet. And I'm like, come on. All you had to do was leave my name in there. You know, I, I saw someone post something on Facebook today. That was one of your, your tweets yeah. that they'd cropped out your name. All, yeah, like all they cropped out my name. All you had to do was just not crop. It was less work to leave yeah. my stuff in. I've had yeah, other which... uh, pages, even Photoshop the watermark out that I put in there, completely change it, but leave it the same. So mm -hmm. it fit their page. Uh, and it was just like, man, all you had to do, all you, you essentially just stole my stuff. And I know the part of memes is, hey, we all share them, but... Mm -hmm. I put my name on there in like in the middle of the photo. So you couldn't, and you went in and Photoshopped it right. out. Like you just, it was more work. <clears throat> uh, these the first one I couple, love is when the, the person stole your name terhuned and they put it on a meme that wasn't even you. Like said, so you've been terhuned <laughs> with some other guy. Yeah. And picture. I'm not even, I'm like, I'm like 1% well-known. Nobody, like, yeah. if you know who I am, it's because you, you're on the internet too, but it's like, right. most people don't know who I, you, you might as well have been uh, X-Factored or uh, is... punked or something. Like, say that, at least. <laughs> uh, now, now, that one's a little, uh, not not as deep, kind of fun. Here's another one that uh, is is not as deep as the other ones we'll talk about, Peter, but... Well, can I say one more thing about this guy? Yeah, It seems yeah. like he was a little ahead of the curve on, like, uh, the cultural appropriation, like... Because now, like, every American kid is into Japanese culture just mm -hmm. deeply. You know, anime is easy to get. They get it everywhere. But yeah. even in the early 2000s, it was still one of those weird things where you probably had to still go to a comic book shop for most of it. Mm -hmm. You had to. And even then, you're going to have to dig through a bunch of stuff. So it's it's he probably did it at at a time when you could still think I could get away with this because social media hadn't exploded yet. The Internet was there, mm -hmm. but it wasn't yet. Everybody's life wasn't yet exposed on the Internet. So yeah. like. But if it had happened even, you know, 10 years or so earlier, he may not have hit the wave of, of that, the Japanese animation craze yet, because it was mm -hmm. super underground until probably 2000. Yeah, well, no, there's a whole streaming service dedicated to anime, and anime is its own thing that makes a lot of money, and Pokemon, it, there was a whole episode that I did on, on this show. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Where it was, I, I don't remember that the numbers was like either number one or two overall global uh, brand was Pokemon. How That's much money they make, you know? <clears throat> I still don't understand what Pokemon even is. I know you it's catch cards them and they evolve in some way. Mm -hmm. but I don't understand. Is it a game or is it just collecting shit? I have no yes. idea. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. It's all those things. It's, there's the South Park episode of when they have Chimpokomon. It's right. Uh, the song is bye, mall got to bye, bye, bye. <laughs> but it's like I was a child of Pokemon and I was sucked into the craze. And, you know, so I I, I get it. But it was because that's part of my childhood. But it's all right. built. A, hey, we got a new hundred more and there's new new cards and new games. And actually, we're going to slightly remake the last game, but put the new guys in there. So it's like the same game, but slightly different every time. It's a genius model. <laughs> um, but it is for kids, right? Because I know adults who are crazy about Pokemon, and it's like it's odd to me. It, but I also, I wasn't both. a kid when it came around. I was already a grown-up. Yeah, and I think a lot of the kids have now grown up 
but also what, how many kids have 60 bucks to buy a game? That's right. the thing is, yeah. And go to conventions. It's now they're, they're adults that either, whether it be a horror convention, a comic con, a Pokemon thing, we, we have adults that I think now are having disposable income, but mm-hmm. yet doing things that a kid would do. And back in the day, I think, your dad would just chop wood and drink beer and look into the right. fire. And that was his hobby, you know, yeah. but it's like nowadays, I think adults ha- are more like, Oh, we have the car guys and the guys that work with their hands, but also vi- there's adult gamers, video game people that, you know, I think times have changed where you don't always have to be chopping wood. You can actually have some real interest, you know? Yeah. Although we probably should chop more wood. Why it builds character. Get you outside. Yeah, wouldn't hurt me at all. And uh, <laughs> I'd wear a flannel shirt and make a TikTok account where it's sexy lumberjack. Uh, but it, then people would be like, "You ain't that sexy." <laughs> but I had a friend who used to work at one of those living uh, history museums, Connor okay. Prairie. If you live in Indianapolis, yeah. Um, but uh, so his day would consist of like in the morning he would be doing, you know, just like normal, like office type stuff. You know, he's got to write a memo and do something with a spreadsheet and blah, blah, blah. And then about, you know, halfway through the day he goes and he puts on his 1840s <laughs> stuff and goes out and chops wood and slops the hogs and yeah. does all that kind of stuff. It's like, that sounds like the perfect job to me. If yeah. I could just get up from my desk at some point and just go chop some wood, go, you know, pretend to be from 1840 and talk about, you know, that would be great. Yeah. That sounds perfect. That's, I mean, if there ever was a double life as a guy who is on <laughs> a computer and then switches to shoeing a horse or whatever, you know, yes, exactly. That that's, uh, I think that's, you should have half days where the guy's chopping wood in the morning and then he gets the half day and then he goes to enter data and right. the data entry guy. So it's like, at least we're getting some physical activity, but then also not overworking at the same time. I think exactly. you're onto something. I usually am. Now, if we can convince uh Globotech or whatever company from <laughs> office space that enters data <laughs> to start chopping wood, we'll be in business. Yes. Uh, <sighs> let, let's jump to another guy. So much better. Okay. Yeah, it would. Uh, Gary Thompson. Uh, now this guy uh, was a panhandler. So he was involved in a motorcycle accident Honest in 93 work. that left him confined what? to a wheelchair. Uh, a motorcycle accident in 1993. Oh, in 1993. I yeah. thought you said he was 93. When oh, I- no. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I said 93, but I meant 1993. <laughs> uh, confined him to a wheelchair and mentally disabled. Uh, the accident left him in a position to lose everything, and he resorted to panhandling to support himself. Anybody with any sympathy would probably throw him a few dollars, but it was all an act, surprisingly, Peter. Thompson was not handicapped, homeless, or mentally ill. The only thing he was telling the truth about was that he was in an accident that left him temporarily injured. Uh, and, and for that, he got $2.5 million in a settlement. Whoa, and then after his $2.5 million, he started... Panhandling? I I don't know. It doesn't clarify. It was like if I'm sure if you got a lawyer, they're gonna get the money you deserve, Peter. So we'll call it a million. Yeah. On the low end, he got a million dollars. But this is in Lexington, uh, Kentucky, uh, and that was his his stomping ground. 
Uh, he was caught speaking without any mental handicap or speech impediment by a Lexington news reporter. Then again, by another reporter wearing a hidden camera. Uh, when interviewed by the reporter after he was exposed, he replied, I appreciate you guys busting me. Yeah, it's I'm good at it. I'm really good. I clear about $100,000 a year doing this. I I am normal. It just helps to be mentally handicapped. Just said that on camera. What? I am so normal. It just helps to be mentally handicapped. Wow. I, you know, I, it's, it's a, I will admit it's a rare occasion that I roll the window down and give the guy on the median a dollar, but I've never uh -huh. checked uh, how handicapped is he? You <laughs> right. know? Like, I never tested this. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never asked the question. It's just if, if I got it, I sometimes I'll give it to you. But it's uh, what a, a what a grifter, man. That's this is a double life, but then a grift at the same time. Yeah, usually what I want from a panhandler is I just want tell me tell me a good story. Yeah, just give me a good story and don't expect much. You know, a couple bucks for a good mm -hmm. story, I'm good for it. You know that that's all I ask. I had one panhandler who would tell jokes. I was like, mm -hmm. all right, that was worth you know tell a couple street jokes. Here's a couple bucks. Yeah, or um, I had the sign. You see the sign? It's funny. It's I need I need money. A family kidnap. Need money for karate lessons. Right. Right. Yeah. I, what I, like I hate that. is when I see the same signs popping up when there's like uh panhandler hacks out there who are who are borrowing other people's slogans. Like I'm if it's the who am I kidding? I'm I'm using it's it for, for beer. beer. Yeah. It's like I okay, the first time I saw it, that was clever, but I mm -hmm. see all these copycats. It's the, the same thing you're talking about with the memes earlier. Yeah, all they it's did like, was crop I, I my name out of that. Yeah. <laughs> that that sign, that cardboard sign. I mean, you've got all day to sit there. You can come up with something original. Yeah, and also, let's not fake uh, everything. A handicap, a physical handicap, and a mental handicap. Let's not fake sure. anything, to be honest, but uh, $100,000. hundred grand a year. I've never made that much. No, it's possible. I have a, I have a, take my seminar. <laughs> uh, you just take the Sharpie, this cardboard box, and we'll work on stuff. Uh, now let's transition that I have two more, but these are a little bit more lengthy, a little more in depth, a uh, little more double life E, if that makes sense. Peter. Okay. We're getting Billy, into the, the, the deep meat. water now. Billy Tipton was uh, a jazz musician, American jazz musician, band leader, talent broker. His uh, music career began in the 1930s when he led a band for radio broadcasts, he played a uh, various dance bands and uh, played for various dance bands in the forties, recorded two trio albums for a small record label in the mid 1950s. Thereafter, he worked as a talent broker and he stopped performing in the late seventies due to his arthritis. So he lived from uh, 1914 to 1989. Let's fast forward rather to 1989 when he, when he dies. Mm -hmm. And then we'll back to, we're going to Tarantino this a little bit and jump around. All right. I'm ready. So one Saturday morning in uh, January of 89, an emergency call summoned paramedics to a trailer park in the outskirts of Spokane, uh, Washington to Billy's home. He had been very ill, too weak to leave his bed. And his adopted son, William called 911. Billy was suffering from what we know now is a hemorrhaging peptic ulcer, which mm -hmm. un untreated was fatal. Uh, the medics arrived and almost immediately 
Lay Tipton on the floor of the trailer, squatted over him and opened his pajamas to feel a heartbeat. One of them turned to William, his adopted son, and asked, Son, did your father have a sex change? Uh, William stepped forward and caught a glimpse of his father's upper body and stumbled back against the screen door and down the trailer steps. Uh, what had he seen? He said, quote, I was in awe. I had no thoughts, just looked up at the sky thinking it was a hallucination from drugs. If my father had lived as a woman, uh, she would have big breasts. Dun, dun, dun. So wow. Billy Tipton uh, was born a woman and lived his whole life as Billy Tipton. Wow. Now, that today this would just be a she he would be a trans man right and there's not really much double lifey about that i get right. that but as we'll learn nobody knew there were a few people but nobody knew his whole life that he was born a woman right um nobody uh but billy uh, had seen billy nude uh from the torso for about 40 years now, I will clarify that he was married five times. His three sons that were adopted did not know that he was a woman or born a woman. But the five wives? Yes. I mean, surely. Yeah. They must have known, right? That's what they I was thinking, right? Shut? And we'll we'll clarify this, but d that's why I'm saying this is where I get. Hey, I justify this as a double life thing. Oh yeah, seriously. Because if how do you how does your most intimate partner not know the person you share a bed with? Yeah, so, that's that's hard to hide. Uh, so for forty years, not even the women he had lived with as wives, Billy was very uh private. And uh, that they explained later, he'd locked the bathroom where he washed and dressed. People who knew his habits knew that he always wore binding on his chest to support his ribs that had been fractured when uh, the front end of a Buick had plowed into his body, or so he claimed. Assigned female birth, Billy was originally named Dorothy Lucille Tipton. Uh, he was born in Oklahoma City in 1914, grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, became interested in music, especially jazz and saxophone. But the high school he went to was just an all-male school band. So he returned to Oklahoma City for his final year in high school and joined the the uh, Connor State College High School uh, band. Around 1933, so to put it in perspective, he's 19 years old. Mm -hmm. Tipton started binding his breast and pressing, uh, presenting stereotypically masculine traits. As Tipton began a more serious music career, he decided to permanently take on the role of a male musician, adopting the name Billy Lee Tipton, and by 1940 was a living a man's uh, life in private as well. <clears throat> so by he he started all this when he was 19, and you know I will pose the question at the end, or we can answer it now is. Was this a, he had an inclination to, he felt he was a man. So he started living as a man. Was it, I want to play music and Hey, this is a man's industry. So do I do that? Uh, and is, is it just easier for a man to get around in the world? I would, I would probably say probably a combination of those. Things. Yeah. Yeah. But that for, is fascinating. Yeah. 
He's married five times, like I said. He's never legally married, but lived uh, with five women who called themselves Mrs. Tipton. Mm -hmm. uh, Tipton's sex was reportedly concealed from all the women, I assume. Uh, Tipton kept the secret of his sexual characteristics from them by telling them he had been in a serious car accident that resulted in damaged genitals and broken ribs. Uh, he eventually married a woman named Kathleen Kelly. That was his uh, ex-wife, his most recent ex-wife at the time of his death. Uh, they settled down in uh, 1961. They adopted three sons, John, Scott, and William, uh, and they were not legally adopted or recognized. So I, back in the day, you could just be like, give me those three kids. <laughs> and that was fine. There's a lot uh, of straight kids around who needed taken care of. Yeah, I I mean better better they take care of them than being on the street, but it's just but you know, nowadays you got to go through all the hoops and they got to come see if your yard's fenced in and I don't know if that's for a dog or a kid, but it's like there's I so think many they use steps. the same rules for both. Yeah, no chocolate. <laughs> no chocolate. <laughs> After they separated around 1977, Tipton resumed a previous marriage with a woman named uh, Marianne. Marianne reportedly discovered his birth certificate and asked Tipton about it uh, once, but was given no reply other than a, quote, terrible look. Wow. And the, the other stuff I read is that it, two of them, two of the five, were they had sex. Which is, but then it didn't really clarify how. It didn't go into the, the details. No, because then I'm thinking uh, all the things had to be right. The The lights had to be dark and mm -hmm. you, you had to have something in the nightstand. And I don't, because if you're presenting as a man, but then they don't know that you're a man or not mm -hmm. a man, like biologically a woman with no penis. I just don't know how that's a lot of stuff going on yeah maybe uh maybe part of the uh the lie about the car accident was to say you know the the genitals were damaged so they weren't usable so maybe the sex was just him you know on oral her? and fingering and yeah things like that it's just i i read i heard this story because a lot of, this one was inspired there's a show called i think the unexplained hosted by william shatner it's one of those mm -hmm. where He's on a soundstage and he talks a little bit, but then they're like, is Bigfoot real? So that's what I, I was lured in by Bigfoot. And then the, right. there was like the double lives. They episode. pulled a switcheroo on you. Yeah. Where it, like this one was uh, Billy Lee Tipton was one of those double lives things. So I was like, this will be a great topic. So if you want more of this, that's on that episode. I think it's on Discovery Plus. But um, it's just like f most people didn't know for 40 years. It's it it is interesting because it's like, I mean, it's not like there weren't trans people back then. Well, there it's not like there weren't like if it was just that okay, this is a male dominated uh, industry. It's not like there weren't female jazz. Yeah, Billy Holiday. But most of them were know? singers, mm -hmm. I guess. How many were actually uh, in the band? Instrumentalists. I I I don't know. So, mm -hmm. yeah. and then to. To then be able to stick with it for that long. That's just a lot of I, stuff to just do every day, you know? And to never slip up. Or maybe if you slip up, people just sort of like, you get that cognitive dissonance thing 
mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, they must have meant something else. They yeah. didn't mean to refer to themselves as Dorothy <laughs> or something, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he hit it very well because he had a social security number, but lived in poverty during the last years of his life rather than claim benefits. He's probably, oh, wow. let's yeah. not rock the boat. Let, let me, I'll just live in poverty rather than go into the social security office and, and then, well, you're, you don't look like a Dorothy, that type of thing, you know, right. Uh, no marriage or divorce was ever recorded. Uh, so William L or Billy Lee Tipton was never actually officially married, uh, since the intention to pass as a man would have been diagnosed as pathological during most of his lifetime. Not much evidence of Billy's inner life was, uh, found really. There was no personal journal among his papers. Only a few letters survived from, uh, among the hundreds written to family members, and one thing I did read was that he had correspondence, I think, with some cousins uh, back home who would write him as Dorothy. Hmm. And they would say, hey, you can come back to the Midwest and and just be Dorothy again. That t- mm-hmm. So it's like, but even his wife, Kathleen, didn't even know about this correspondence. Right. Like, she, so she didn't even know that there were cousins or whatever back uh, in the Midwest. At the time of his death, he was uh, divorced from Kitty and things had gone bad with the sons upon the revelation that uh, he was uh, biologically a woman. After his cremation, there were two boxes of ashes, one entrusted to John and Scott. Uh, there was a, It was a house divided or brothers divided. So there were John and Scott got one box of the ashes. Then the other went to William, his other son. And as a journalist observed, even now, ironically, there are two Billy Tiptons. It's a Just double kind of life a, and a double death. Yeah. And it's a lot of that I'll, was from some of that was from Wikipedia, but I also fi- found another article from a lady named, named uh, Diane Middlebrook. And she wrote a book called Suits Me, The Double Life of Billy Tipton. And, uh, so you know, the double, a lot of that stuff was from her book. So I wanted to give her credit. Uh, okay. Just so you can look that up, but but if what a, Billy what a life. Tipton didn't leave behind any any journals or anything, then how much of that book is conjecture? Like, yeah, what, she... talking to the to the wives and stuff, and yeah, there was there were two wills, and that's it was a big thing of people fighting over what, and you know, you can imagine people fight over stuff after death. That's that's not a an uncommon thing to happen, but no, not at all. To, and then to, you have this shock that you will learn about right at the end. Oh my God. Yeah. To have, you know, our father your, had something else going on. Your dad who you've never like, I, all I saw was my dad with the shirt off when I was a kid, <laughs> just in his underwear. It yeah. was like, just have ne- like, your dad never got in the pool. He never, I just anything. What a, yeah. what a life so strange that that he wouldn't be able to let it down even in private yeah even then, with the most I mean, intimate relationships it could be that it was maybe there was some uh some gender dysphoria that was causing it it wasn't just about living the life wanting to be a successful jazz musician maybe there was mm-hmm. a a gender dysphoria that it was dealing with and that's why he Kept it hidden even from his his uh, intimate partners. Yeah, that is well, really fascinating. 
and back in the day, you know, you couldn't even be gay. Like, right, right. Like you couldn't, even, you know, like, oh, there was or, so much wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so much that he would have gotten in trouble for. Not to uh, mention black or non-white. Yeah. So just being a jazz musician would get you in trouble some places. Yeah. So, I mean, I get it. And I, you know, I'm not one to judge, but what a, what a story of like, even, even your closest people didn't even know. It's, yeah. it's nuts. Uh, we'll move on to our, our second, you know, heavier. Go ahead. I wanted to ask about, since it was on the same uh, episode, is there is there a double life that Bigfoot leads that that uh, <laughs> we could delve into somehow? Well, if, if, that's just... if there is, uh, we would never know because uh, all the security cam footage is already right. pre-pixelated. So <laughs> He's, Bigfoot is also probably some millionaire who just goes out and does it. Yeah, uh, well, I, I just did a Bigfoot episode and a lot of it apparently was like uh, construction workers on the same site that would go back to work after everybody left with uh, uh, like uh, not plaster cast, but like the wooden things they would put on their feet to uh-huh. appear uh, big footed and all that stuff. To, so to make to make big, big footprints. Is that what they're doing with it? Yeah. Yeah. Do they also make uh, crop circles on the weekends. Maybe. You know, yeah, that's pro- I think that's more paranormal, but uh, I I did see a special how they did that where they would take a board and they would put uh, a rope on the board right. uh, at either end and step on the board and move around and make the either way. I think that's also cool as from an art perspective to be able to make a design, but not really see it unless you had a drone, which yeah, those are only recently, you know, <laughs> Uh, here's actually another one from that same special. It's called The Unexplained uh, by with uh, William Shatner. But this guy is uh, Ferdinand Waldo Demera De Jr. He uh, was born 1921, died uh, 1982. Uh, people called him Fred, so we'll call him Fred. His mama called him Fred. I'm going to call him Fred. <laughs> uh, and I'll just give you a rundown of all the things that he pretended to be because it's astounding, Peter. Naval surgeon, civil engineer, sheriff's deputy, assistant prison warden, doctor of applied psychology, hospital orderly, lawyer, child care expert, Benedictine monk, Trappist monk, editor, cancer researcher, teacher. <laughs> so we, we'll we'll get into the the this meat. Like the catch me if you can guy. Yeah, Frank uh, Abagnale, and that could, Abagnale, yeah. That's a that could be a two parter as well. Is uh is that guy and maybe there are more but this guy was super interesting because i started off with naval surgeon peter so that was the first one he that was now, that in the order well, of actually doing it? kind of in with that but that was the heaviest hitter uh so he was said to possess, to possess a true photographic memory was wildly reputed to have an extraordinary iq he apparently was able to memorize uh, necessary techniques from uh, textbooks and worked on two cardinal rules. The burden of proof is on the accuser and when in danger, attack. So <laughs> he's born in Massachusetts. His family became uh, very poor during his childhood. They were doing well. And, um, I don't remember exactly what happened, but they, then they were uh, stuff ter- took a turn and he left home at the age of 16 and joined the Trappist monks in Rhode Island. After two years, he was told he wasn't suited to be uh, a monk. Uh, instead, they sent him to Brothers of Charity Home near Montreal, Canada. 
who's then transferred to Brothers of Charity Boys Home in West Newberry, Massachusetts, where he taught fourth grade. So to, and after running away from the Brothers of Charity, uh, with uh, after an argument with a superior, he joined the United States Army. That's in 1941. So to put into to perspective, at 1941, he's 20 years old. Uh-huh. They just had him teach in fourth grade <laughs> at 18 or 19. Just like slightly older than those kids. I think if you're in fifth grade, you can teach fourth grade. I think as long well, as I you're mean, a grade ahead of the people you're teaching, I think you can do it. They do say uh, learn it as if you have to teach it. Yeah. So... You know, you practice you, that two plus two. You could do that. Teach a little kid and little than you and pass it on. But and there's I had to trim a lot of this out. There's a lot of going into different uh, abbeys and religious organizations in uh-huh. and out of that his whole life. Did they say why he wasn't suited to be a monk? I think it's because he was a liar. <laughs> like, there's so many of these <laughs> that will hold you back. Yeah, where they just find out he's not who he was. So the following year, he began his his new life. Uh, So, uh, yeah, borrowing the name of Anthony Ignolia, an army buddy, uh, after going AWOL. So I think he goes AWOL from the army, takes that guy's name, joins the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane, another Trappist monastery, but this time in Kentucky, and assumed the identity, but he was... uh, met an acquaintance from the other monastery. (laughs) So he had to leave that pretty quickly before his true identity was revealed. He then moved to a different abbey in Dubuque, Iowa, before finally returning home. And his father encouraged him. He said, son, turn yourself into the military police for desertion. And wouldn't you know, he didn't, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Shocking. So what do you do when you you leave the army and you go AWOL and you're a deserter? You joined the Navy. <laughs> Lower standards in the Navy or what? I guess. I don't know. You're off on a ship somewhere. I, I mean, it's, I don't know which name he was using then. I think we'll get into it. Uh, yeah. So he, he joins the Navy. He's working in a hospital. He didn't uh, get the position that he wanted. So he faked his suicide and borrowed another name, Robert Linton French, and became a religion oriented psychologist he went by dr french then presented himself to the benedictine monastery in arkansas as a would-be catholic convert however after a few weeks he was summoned to the abbot's office where he was accused of having forged documents he denied the accusation but then left so then he goes on as dr french and applied to various jobs at catholic colleges he worked at gabin college an Erie PA, which is now a university. He was uh, the dean of the School of Philosophy. Uh, he after uh, had an unfortunate yes. <laughs> they made him the dean, and it, it's I'm like I've told some lies, but I've never been like this is really on them, Doctor Brent Terhune. Like that's a lie. That's a big lie, you know. But but this was back in the day, pre Google and all that. So it's like, what do you? What are you going to do? I have these documents that say who I am. It's interesting that he keeps going back to different uh, monastic orders. It's like, is he switching it up? Like he's, he starts out with the Benedictines and he goes to the Franciscans and then to the Jesuits. He yeah. spread it around a little bit. So they yeah, it's, and it's, you know, 
back in the day, it was probably a little harder to find the phone number to the Franciscan monks at the other place. So it was just like, yeah, I get it. Why would a monk lie to me? You know, <laughs> uh, after Did you ever perform surgery as a naval surgeon, or are we getting to that? Can I finish? Oh, I apologize. Can I finish? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, afterwards, uh, he served as an orderly in uh, LA and a sanitarium and served as an instructor at St. Martin's college, now a university in uh, Washington state. The FBI captured him, and he served 18 months at the Naval Disciplinary Barracks in California. After his release, he assumed a fake identity and studied law at night at Northeastern University. And he also became acquainted with a young Canadian surgeon named Joseph C. Sire, a trauma surgeon. Uh, so he became a trauma surgeon aboard the HMCS Cayuga, a Royal Canadian Navy destroyer during the Korean War. His most notable surgical practices were performed on 16 Korean combat injuries who were loaded onto the ship. That's how this part of, the, of that William Shatner thing starts is they're loading 16 Korean uh, soldiers onto the ship and they all need surgery. Can you imagine telling the lie that you're a surgeon <laughs> And then not just one, but 16 come on the ship. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, so after wow. ordering personnel to transport the people to the e to the OR, the 16, he disappeared to his room with a textbook of general surgery and proceeded to speed read the various <laughs> surgeries he would have to perform, most notably a major chest surgery. One of the soldiers died as a, or none, none of the soldiers died as a result of his surgeries. Wow. Apparently the removal of a bullet from a wounded man ended up in a Canadian newspaper. One person reading the reports was the mother of Joseph Sear, the real Joseph Sear. Her son uh, at the time was practicing medicine at Grand Falls in New Brunswick. News researchers, uh, news reaches the ship that he's not who he says he is. However, uh, faced with the embarrassment of having allowed an imposter into the ranks, Canadian officials chose not to press charges. Instead, they just removed him quietly. Uh, they should have given him a medal. Did, he did, he's not even a trained surgeon, and he performed surgery on 16 people, and none of them, they all survived? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. How, like... I say that, you know what I call that? I call that a surgeon. So no, nobody died. And I'm like, this guy may be a fake, but uh, yeah, there's no surgeon for it. or the fake surgeon. Give me the fake surgeon, I guess. And I want to know the uh, the guy whose name he stole. Uh, what was that guy's Joseph name? Joseph Sear. How many people died from surgeries that he performed? That's, That's what true. I want to know. Yeah. Because if fake Joseph Sear has a better track record than real Joseph Sear, I feel like not only should he get a medal, he mm -hmm. should get to keep the name Joseph Sear. That's the contest is that you, you could steal anybody's identity by doing their job better than as them. As long as you could be better than them at what they do. <laughs> but also then you, then it's like, what, how, what kind of surgeries is the real guy performing? Are they more difficult than removing probably a bullet? Not. He's I probably, don't know. You know, giving kids stitches who fell off their skateboards and shit like that. He's not doing anything major. Not the kind of thing you would find on a uh, on a warship, mm -hmm. you know, off the coast of, of the Korean War. 
No. Can you imagine like you're about to any of that? You're about to go under. They're giving you the anesthesia or whatever, and the last thing you see is the doctor opening the textbook and placing it on your chest. <laughs> hmm. Oh, oh man! Like, or pulling up that nowadays it would be the YouTube video of right. the how-to. <laughs> oh man! Like for for as a, a guy that's stolen and lied and stuff, I'm like, nobody died. You know, yeah. I'd put him in the win column. I would say so. Well, and he had some. Uh, he had philosophies to stealing identities, and so he he had a belief. He told his biographer he was successful in his roles because he was able to fit into positions which no one else had previously occupied. He explained uh, in the following excerpt, excerpt from his biography, he uh, he had two uh, he had come to two beliefs. One was that any organization there are always uh, a lot uh, of loose, unused power laying around which can be picked up without alienating anyone. And the second rule is if you want power and you want to expand, never encroach on anyone else's domain, open up new mm. ones. So if, if you want a job and some guy already has that job, don't go after his job, make a new one for you. And he, he, he explained it as expanding into the power vacuum. If you come into a new situation, don't join other professors committees try to make your mark by moving up in in that committee you'll you'll never move up and you'll mm -hmm. have a long haul but uh and you'll make an enemy of that professor he said find your own committee that way there's no competition no past mm -hmm. standards to measure you by how can anyone tell you aren't running a top outfit there's no other example to compare it to and then uh there's no past laws or rules or precedents or anything like that so he said, make your own way. If you're going to, if you're going to tell the lie, make up a new position or whatever. So nobody can be like, call you out on your, on your bullshit. <laughs> that is, uh, those are probably, did, did he put out a book? Cause he would be one of those people running a, <laughs> running a YouTube channel today on how to get ahead in life. He'd be Jordan Belfort from Wolf of Wall Street. Who's like <laughs> swindled people, old people out of their money. And then I'm then he's idolized for being this guy who, you know, is now, a, a salesman. Do we have any, did he actually swindle anybody? Because it seems like he took jobs under false pretenses and then tried to do those jobs from like, what tried I to do them regularly. Yeah. And if he did them well, then I don't think he swindled anybody. He got paid. Yeah. I, th I think he was doing an honest job in a dishonest way <laughs> where, because it didn't seem like to me that this guy was like a grifter or, and yet, yes, he was a grifter moving around with different names, but he was also right. doing the jobs, you know, like so, he wasn't stealing credit card numbers. And, and I mean, maybe he was as well, but I don't know that they had him back then, so. but may, maybe let's say, let's put a credit card in front of him. Let's see what he does. You know? Yeah. Let's find out. Is he still alive? Is he still kicking? I, I think or he, he died. He died in, um, what He'd was it? Quite old. He'd be over a hundred, I guess. Yeah. He'd be, uh, he died in 82, June 7th, 1982. Okay. Man, um, he could have really, that dude could have done some work once the internet got around because it would, oh, yeah. well, although that would also bust him by the same token. Yeah. I, now, and I, I, I don't know. I always feel like if I time traveled, I'd be like, oh, I'd be so good at, uh, at lying and shit. But I'm like, I'm not, I'm not good at anything now. What makes me right. better back in the day, <laughs> I just would be able to get, uh, I would get caught less because one frontier town is not talking to the next frontier right. town. You, you just know? keep moving on.
There was he... uh, a kid I went to high school with who just in the past 10 years, I saw a a news article. It may have been in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, It was about this guy who was claiming to be like a descendant of like Scottish royalty. Mm-hmm. And... He was he had been arrested for something in in New York and and he was trying to claim like some sort of diplomatic immunity or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then they just found that for the past 25 or more years that he's just been this this grifter, this this con artist and that he's changed his name several times. And I remember way back in high school that he had a lot of stories that didn't really make any sense that were just sort of. <laughs> Like really, he would he claim was practicing you know, on you. Well, yeah, he was. He he would claim like being related to people that that he wasn't related to, and yet it was such a weird claim that you wouldn't expect that mm-hmm. someone would make you know that claim. Yeah, it's uh, like a tell a lie, but make it very specific. Make it like I'm friends with John C. Riley's nephew. Right. Who's gonna who who cares? Who's check who gives a but shit? Who cares? Yeah, yeah. yeah. like. <laughs> that yeah, there was a kid like that in in the school that I went to, but it wasn't. It was more so telling lies to be. Like, he'd be like, "Yeah, we have four four wheelers," and I'd be like, "Yeah, maybe I should come over and ride them." Uh they're they're all getting fixed right now. Like, <laughs> it was like a lie that you tell another kid right. to impress the kid, and I would just kind of be like, "Maybe I should come over and hang out." No, they're kind of all in the shop right now. That type of thing, you know. And it's weird because you'd think part of wanting to, you're wanting to make kids like you by telling a lie like that. Mm-hmm. And if that if that happens, then they're going to also want to hang out with you. Like, what did he think? Like, yeah. I'll make friends with this guy by telling him about my four wheelers, and then when the guy wants to come and hang out with the four wheelers, it's just nope, sorry. Yeah, that that's that's a lie that can only go as far as him saying it. <laughs> And then hopes he hopes that I'm not interested in that. That, but that's a kid lie. Kids <laughs> right, don't think right. that far out. You know, like, oh, that's stupid. I don't care. <laughs> then you'll never find the end of the lie. Wow. Um. Let's let's wrap up here with uh. So, this guy, Freddie. It's our final guy. No, he. Uh, th- we'll just wrap up on on. on oh, him, wrap up on Freddie, our surgeon. Uh, he had some minor fame, believe it or not. He sold his uh, story to Life magazine. Back in the day, you know, you still see, and you go to Antique Mall's Life Magazine. Back when Life biggest, Magazine existed. Huge, huge magazine as far as oh, people read it, but also physically a large magazine. Yeah. Uh, he And he worked in short-term jobs, and since he uh, became widely known, he, he couldn't really do the grifts anymore. Only after he returned to his old tricks <laughs> and possessed fake credentials could he get another job, this time in a prison in Huntsville, Texas. Soon, uh, soon after that, an inmate found a copy of Life and and blew his cover. So that hey, that's the guy. That's the guy. <laughs> on November fifth, nineteen fifty nine, he appeared on the game show. Uh, it was called uh, "Take a Good Look," and it was hosted by a guy named Ernie Kovacs. The uh, object was for one of three celebrity panelists to guess his identity, and then a week later, after that, in uh nineteen fifty nine, he reappear uh, he appeared on a show called uh, You Bet Your Life with old Groucho Marx. Wow. Uh, DeMeyer recounted his exploits and said the $1,000 he earned on the show was going to be donated to the Feed and Clothe Fred DeMera Fund. 
So a little bit of humor wow. there at the end, but Fred. that guy of just a surgeon and teacher. And he, he, act, he wrote a, a pamphlet on how to raise kids. That's where that child expert thing comes in. But it's, I mean, you can't say he didn't work because he wrote the pamphlet. He right. did the work. He should have written. Did he, did he ever publish a memoir or something? Cause that probably could have sold well. I, mean, could have... I, I don't, I didn't find that. I found that he had that biography, uh, yeah. that, that was written about him, but I Someone mean, else wrote it though. Yeah. Talk about like, he has a he photographic memory story for a movie. Yeah. Well, and it's what we do have those. We have <clears throat> catch me if you can. Right. I'm trying to think of those other identity movies. So maybe it was like, yeah, we can only have one identity theft movie and we're going to go with Frank Abagnale, you know? Yeah, but you said this guy died in 82? Uh, yeah, I think that's what it was. So, yeah, I mean, that, Catch Me If You Can doesn't come out until mid-90s, right? Yeah. He he could, he, this movie could have happened in the 70s. Yeah. and I could have had all that money. And maybe if I pull up that article again, it'll say, it? but... Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, I don't know. So yeah, I'm looking at him, and uh, he was also no no small man. Apparently, he was kind of large when he was the surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me let me type in large as in tall or fat or both. Uh, at least fat looking a little bit. Okay. The Great Imposter is a 1961 American comedy drama film uh, movie based on the story of uh, Ferdinand Waldo Damera. Okay. So at least there's one movie, but that's even in six from sixty one. But it doesn't sound like he got uh, much benefit from that movie. Yeah, well, he I had, had to, to Google it. I stance. didn't say, "Hey, you know the blankety blank movie," yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> um. So that yeah, that's the movie's the Great Imposter. So, but yeah, wow. that's our double lives episode, Peter. Wow, those are all pretty good. And yeah, they're all so, coming from different angles. That's what's it's fascinating about it. First two, you know, little f- maybe fluff pieces, maybe not pretending to be mentally challenged, but then Billy Tipton and then uh, old Frankie over here. Both very de- dedicated to it, but also very different approaches. It's like uh, Billy Tipton uh, maybe necessarily had to be super private about mm-hmm. everything, whereas it's like Fred was just out doing everything. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Every like, stealing names right and left. He's more wow. successful at lying than I am at telling the truth. <laughs> what a, what a story! But uh, wow. uh, check out uh, uh, storytelling show at the White Rabbit Cabaret. Did yes. you say every third Tuesday? Every third Tuesday of the month. And what it's called? Rabbit Tales is the it show. It's called Rabbit Tales. We did rename it. Yeah, you stole my show, and you stole the no. Yeah. <laughs> They joke. wanted a they wanted a a uh a uh identifiable reboot. name. Yeah, because yeah. it was called Speakeasy, a storytelling show, but if you just saw Speakeasy, you don't know what that is, you know. Right. I you get might it. think, oh, is this a cool place where we can go and drink cocktails from the nineteen twenties and dress mm-hmm. like flappers? I mean you could do that, but it wasn't a part of the show. No. But uh yeah, that's every third Tuesday, White Rabbit Cabaret in Indianapolis, uh one of my favorite venues. And I might even stop in and do a story because I just did the most. Anytime, man. Anytime uh, you want to come by. I'll kick people off the show if I have to. No, don't do that. But and I'll tell them Brent Terhune asked me to kick you off so you (laughs) can specifically. (laughs) And also you do stand up. So so you'll pop around uh, on shows in Indy as well. So, yes, come out Uh, and see shows. 
and and subscribe to everything Brent's doing too. I'll do your plugs. Uh, Thank Brent's going to be in uh, Springfield. I don't, I'm not sure what state, but it'll be in a Springfield eventually. It's sometime. very much like the Simpsons. We never say what state, but I'll be in right. Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> so come check them out. Uh, but Peter Frederick Wallace, thank you for being on the show, man. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it.